0: We're going to continue through our series through the book of James this evening. We're getting pretty far along. We're in James chapter 4 now. James chapter 4, and tonight we're going to talk about more grace. That's what we all need, Some more grace. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I ask for help now again, Lord, to minister your word yeah, as the Apostle Paul Timothy, that tonight I may be, that I might present myself as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Pray that your your scripture would be living and active tonight to bind our consciences, our hearts, our minds, our wills to yours, Lord, to think your thoughts after you, and to be a people, Lord, who is humble. Lord, and gracious, and experiences the sweetness of fellowship um, that, that comes from being touched by your grace. <clears throat> we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you have a Bible, you can turn to James chapter 4. <clears throat> and as you do, I just want to mention a name to you John Newton that name may mean something to some of you. Uh, John Newton was a slave trader who later became a preacher of the gospel. He was soundly converted. And looking back over his life, he, before he was converted, he estimated that he had transported 20,000 slaves across the Atlantic. He said that in his nightmares, he could still hear them scream. But God's grace touched him, and being so touched by God's grace, he, he, of course, wrote a song called Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And in his old age, this is what John Newton said. <clears throat> He said, I am not what I ought to be. Oh, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the Apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's true for all of us in Jesus Christ, it's only by the grace of God that we are what we are. <clears throat> That's what we want going to talk about tonight. So if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word from James chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Well, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And he will exalt you. The word of God. may be seated. I want to see three things from our passage this evening. Number one, the problem of our passions. Number two, the joy of God's jealousy. And number three, the glory of God's grace. So the problem of our passions, the joy of God's jealousy, and the glory of God's grace. First... The problem of our passions. <clears throat> the source, James says, of quarrels and fights among us, he says, is our passions and it's our desires. <coughs> this, I think, gives us pause and reason to think about Christianity's unique perspective on the relationship of our desires and passions and our humanity. And it's important to think about because how you view uh, our relationship with our desire uh, is an an incredibly important part of your worldview, of how you think, of how you look at the world. Let me give you some examples. In the Buddhism, for example, all desire is bad in Buddhism. to desire or to want anything is bad because desire connects you to the world. And in Buddhism, it is our connection to the world that leave, leaves us on this endless wheel, this endless cycle of incarn- reincarnation. And to what we want is to be set free from the world and to experience nirvana or complete and uh, total separation from the world. Okay. And that's why Buddhist monks, for example, will go into a monastery and in order to totally separate themselves from the world. Why? Because desire is inherently bad. It it, it traps you, it, it ties you to this world when you're when we're trying to escape the world. Conversely, in our increasingly licentious Western culture, we live in a day in which um, desire is not. <laughs> It's not merely a good thing, but it is exalted. We live in a culture that exalts and approves of nearly every desire. (coughs) In fact, in many cases, one's desire is um, embraced as one's identity. That is, if I find in myself a desire for a certain thing, or a person, or kind of person. The most obvious example today might be like uh, homosexuality then not only is that desire to be embraced simply because i have the desire but i can then now i can uh, i can and in fact should claim that desire as an innate part of my identity in other words it's not just a desire that i have the desire is who i am and to not embrace the desire would to be wrong, would, would actually be wrong Because on this logic, it would be a denial of who I am. And so you have one extreme which says all desire is bad. You have another extreme which will go and teach us to actually find our identity in our desires. And then you have the Bible. You have Christianity, which over and against these two extremes says something distinct and unique And that is what we really intuitively all know if we think about it. And that is that desire in in and of itself is is not innately bad. I would say that God made us to desire. God made us to crave. Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. You see, it's not desire in, in, in itself, that's the problem. The problem is, is that there are good and bad desires. And there is a God who tells us which is which. That some desires are good and should be embraced, and some desires are wrong and should be rejected. And we should embrace the desires that God made us for and we should reject the desires that God forbids us because it makes us less than ourselves less than who he made us to be not only this but the Bible says that again the Bible again has a unique take on, on humanity contrary to the world Again, we live in a culture where many would say, "If you if you if something feels natural to you, then it then it's right." And in fact, if you think about it, that that you know, if you don't believe in God, you have to. If you if you wholly wholly embrace the secular worldview, then then honestly, we're we're little more than highly evolved animals. So of course, the best we can do is if it feels natural, you should do it because that's, that's we're, we're we're little more than highly evolved animals. But the Bible says that we were made by God in the divine image to represent and to reflect God's goodness and God's uh, righteousness. And so we're to flee the evil uh, and we're to embrace the good. We're all born with sin and natures, however, the Bible says, that we all have an innate propensity to embrace the wrong desires and so that from a Christian perspective that explains why sin feels so natural to us it's because Adam and Eve our first fa- uh, mother and father they fell they rebelled against God and we fell in them and we are born now with sin natures where we where we all have this innate propensity to sin so yes Sin will feel natural to us, but we must reject it. We must reject it because it is less than who we were made to be. And so as a Christian, we understand the battle quite differently. We understand the battle is that there is that there are good desires, that there are bad desires. There are desires I should reject. There are desires I should embrace. The question is the question that every single person then without exception has to answer is this will i believe my desires more than i'll believe my god will i trust my desires more than i will trust god will i well, when when i have a desire that tells me to do something that i know god forbids and he says that it will lead to destruction will i will i will i choose this short fleeting pleasure for a lifetime of of Guilt and shame, and if I go on unrepentantly to the end, um, punishment and hell forever? Or will I trust God that He has made us? He has made me for good and for righteousness. And if I pursue the good and reject and put to death my evil desires, then I'll find life in Him. And so, every one of us is faced with the decision whether to embrace. Whether to, whether to embrace our desires or whether to submit our desires to God. And this is true of everyone without exception, regardless of the type of sin that you struggle with. Right? And so I've had, I've had good friends who, who have struggled with same-sex attraction and desire. It's nothing, it's nothing unique. It's really nothing out of the ordinary. That sin's been going on for a long time. And that person may struggle with this sin, and we struggle with a different sin. They're just a little more fashionable sins, so we don't think as much about them. But it's just as big a deal to God. You struggle with the desire for laziness, or gluttony, or pride, or arrogance, or greed. At every single one of those desires, we have to say whether I'll embrace that desire, whether I'll submit it to God. James says that these passions are at war Within us. They are, they are literally, there's just raging within us. And then he goes on and says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. <clears throat> so James, he notes this connection between our desires our, and our passions that live within us. And then the fighting and quarreling that we have among other people. So our passions don't just cause a problem between our relationship with God. Our passions cause a problem between our relationship with one another. And think about it, of course. Anytime you've ever gotten mad at someone, it's because you've wanted something from them that you didn't get. Alright? If you're a kid, you wanted a cookie and they didn't give it to you and you get mad about it. Alright? Or it can get a lot more complicated. In a marriage relationship, for example, you want a certain type of love or affection or respect or, you know, uh, they, they squeeze the, the toothpaste from the top and you're supposed to roll it from the bottom, okay? And it bothers you. You, you. you have something you want that should be a certain way and you don't get it. And it makes you fight and it makes you quarrel. It's desire that you have that you don't get that causes the problems, you feel disrespected, you feel, you know, so your your opinion wasn't uh, uh, embraced like you thought it should be or something like that. And in fact, this heart that we can we can bear can actually we can take that same heart to God in prayer. James says, he says you go to God with the same way you treat others. You desire something from God, and but then you get you you don't get it and you get mad at God about it. And the reason he didn't give it to you is because you what the only reason you asked him was for selfish worldly purposes. You didn't have God in mind, you didn't have Christ's kingdom in mind, you had yourself in mind. And that's why God didn't answer your prayer. And we get mad at God about it too. And so we see that desire is the problem. And it's not just desire that's the problem, but it's desire and passions that we have that we don't get, that don't get satisfied. And, of course, it's obvious, but it's worth worth making explicit here. You see, there are two ways to get a child to stop fussing and whining. Two ways. Way number one is just give them everything they ask for. But what you will do is you will also then legitimize every desire that they have and reinforce their out-of-control desires and teach them to be a selfish, greedy, spoiled brat. Or you can teach them to control their desires and learn gratitude for what they have and trust in what God has spoken and in the authority you have over them as their parents. And so in other words, it's the desires that that rage in our members and if we... in, in it's what causes these battles against us. And if we don't learn by the power of the Spirit to control our desires and to not re- not orient everything around ourselves, but orient everything around God, not what I'm not getting, but not in or- not thinking about, not focusing on how I'm not being served, but focusing on how I can serve then that's only then where our perspective change, and we won't have adversarial relationships against others trying to get, constantly get, get, get out of others what only God can give us. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. (coughs) And how does this work in practice? Well, you know, maybe it's help that you feel like you are not getting or respect or affection or honor or praise or recognition or attention. Or maybe you're on your way to work and you wanted to be on time for work. And this person in front of you woke up that morning and thought to themselves, I'm going to make sure no matter what that this person I don't even know is going to be late to work. And so they're driving slowly just so that you don't make it on time. And we get mad and we get angry because we have these desires. They're not being met, And of course, it gets really complicated and gets really tricky because... (laughs) <laughs> because there are things of course, you see what, what what can make this so tricky is that in the christian life it's not just that it's not there there are good desires it's not it's not bad for to desire a certain level of respect. a husband wants to be respected by his wife, a wife wants to be loved by her husband there there's nothing bad about those things, but it can also be they can also become bad when they uh, they, they can become sinful by degree. By degree. And that is, we want something so bad that we convince ourselves that we can't be happy without it. And when you convince yourself that you can't be happy without something, you've just created what the Bible calls an idol. That is, if I don't have this, I can't be happy. I can't be fulfilled. I can't be fully me. In other words, I'm looking to it as my source of happiness. And we do this all the time. We, look, we, we can look to relationships for the source of our happiness. We can, anything, we can look to other things for our source of happiness when only, only God can satisfy the deepest longings and, and, and needs of our hearts. That's why the key to relationship in the church, and that's why the church is supposed to be a place of unity and peace and not of quarreling and fighting, is because we have Christ and we have the Holy Spirit of God. And we're, we're, to, be, we're, we're to have our needs and our, 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 our emotional and relational needs met supremely in Christ. So that we're not constantly needing from other people. But we're constantly being filled with Christ so that we can give to others. And see when you're done. And of course it's easier said than done. But when you're walking closely with Christ. And and. <laughs> you're his he's your friend and you're his friend and you're you're walking with him and you're giving your burdens to him and you're conversing with him and you're praying to him and you're walking in, in sweet relationship to him he really does meet those needs and he really does free you then from yourself to serve others right cuz it's only it's only when it's only when your you you're your needs your relational uh, needs and emotional needs are satisfied in Christ that you're then free to give and serve other people. Otherwise, you're, otherwise rather than being a giver, you're going to be looking around being a taker from your relationships. <clears throat> and only that can free you to do what Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 32. Jesus said, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You see, if you want to really be like God, you have to be so satisfied in God that, that you're not always giving just to receive back. You have to be so satisfied in God, so trusting that He's, that he's going to judge rightly, that He's going to judge well, that you... that. <coughs> That you're not constantly, have, you, don't, you don't feel like you constantly have to look out for number one. Because you know that God's looking out for you. That you really can serve people expecting nothing in return. You really can serve, yes, the ungrateful and the evil. You really can serve and love them expecting nothing in return. Why? Because that's how God treats us. Think about all the people who blaspheme God's name today and he still makes their heart beat. And puts food on their table. God is merciful. God is merciful, and what does He say? He says, "Expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great." You know, it may. You know, sometimes we serve people, and they, and something happens, and we realize that they, 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 they were ungrateful of that gift, and, and you know, it makes us mad, and it makes us not want to help other people. Anymore, But you know what the Bible says? God says, I'm like that all the time. In fact, Chad, I give you stuff all the time and you're ungrateful about it. You be like me and you give, yes, even to the ungrateful. They might be ungrateful, but I'm not. I'm watching and your reward will be great. In fact, it's even more blessed. It's, it's blessed to give in those circumstances because because it, it, it's even harder to do, and it even shows more greatly the grace of God to show kindness to those who don't deserve it. And so James points out here that the problem in our fighting, and our quarreling amongst ourselves is our passions. That we must find, we must be satisfied in Christ. Number two, we see the joy of God's jealousy in verses four and five. It says, you adulterous people... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James calls them an adulterous people. Um, the, the word there is feminine, so he's, he's literally calling, calling them adulteresses. And it's strong language, but of course, this would not be language that would be new to a Jew... Because the Old Testament prophets in many places likened Israel to an adulteress. Just one example, Ezekiel 16. Thus says the Lord your God, Because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them, that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And everyone's kind of like, whoa, God, hold up. Let me tell you something. (coughs) That language, though it sounds excruciatingly harsh to us, we have to remember God's relationship with Israel. Israel was God's covenant people. Remember, Paul said that marriage was given to be an illustration of the relationship of God with his people. It's a covenant God saved Israel from slavery and on Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with them. In effect, he married them. He said to Israel, you will be my holy people set apart from me. You'll be mine and I'll be yours. You'll be my people and I will be your God forever. What is that? It's a relation, it's a covenant relationship, it's a marriage relationship. and Israel's hundreds, centuries of idolatry with false gods amounts to centuries of spiritual adultery against God. And guess what? Yes, there will be a time too, in our day when God's patience will be up for spiritual adultery. And his wrath will be poured out. But James here applies the same language to the church. And of course it makes perfect sense because, again, Paul said that we, the church, is Christ's bride. And so then, any time that anything, anything in this world receives our greater affection than Jesus Christ, then we are in the truest sense committing spiritual adultery against our Savior. And that's what James says. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's enmity with God. That God, by virtue of being God, is singularly worthy of our affections as His creature. And the greatest thing, truly the greatest crime that we can commit is refuse to honor God for who he is. Refuse to honor God as God, and the way we do that is to love anything more than him. Because when we do that what we are saying is that there is something more lovely than him. It's adultery, it's blasphemy. But of course, this is the great temptation. Jesus talked about it all the time. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other. He will either be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or anything else. And think about it. He talks about serving money. We don't think about serving money. How does a person serve money? What does that even mean to serve money? Well, think about it. You serve money when you pursue it Because you think in pursuing money, it'll make you happy, right? That's how you serve money. You serve it in order to get it, because you think when you get it, it'll make you happy. Guess what? That's the same way you're supposed to serve God. We serve God because we know when we serve God, we get God. When we get God, he makes us supremely happy. No one can make us happy like God. We're made for God and for God alone. Therefore, what Jesus is saying is this. Anything you pursue to make you happy, you are serving and anytime you pursue something other than God to make you happy, you're committing spiritual adultery. Whether it's money or comfort or security or peace, even good things like family and the American dream, those are good things. But if you are looking to those to make you supremely happy, if, you love, if you're friends with those more than you're friends with God, you're committing spiritual adultery. All those things are gifts. From God, but they're not the giver. They're not God. And guess what? Because God loves his people, he's jealous for their affections. And that's what it says. Do you not know? Verse 5 Do you suppose it is no purpose? The scripture says that he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. God, the Bible says, is jealous for our affections. We generally think of jealousy. As a bad thing and of course in many ways it is but jealousy is right in the context of a covenant relationship a husband should be jealous for the affections of his wife a wife should be jealous for the affections of her husband now I'm not talking about he has like a secret tracker planted on her so that he knows wherever he goes if you do that you got problems Okay, need professional help Okay, but a spouse in a covenant relationship should be jealous for the affections of their spouse. If you're married and your spouse cheats on you and you don't care, that's a problem. You don't love them if you don't care about the singleness of their affections for you. God loves us. He has covenanted with his people, the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And therefore he is jealous for us. And therefore when we go, yes, to use the biblical term, whoring, whoring after other things to make us happy because God's not enough. Then yes, God's jealousy does burn for our affections for him. God said this in Exodus chapter 20 when he gave the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. is a jealous God. Why? Because what did he just say? How did he he start? He said, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God's a jealous God because he delivered us He's a jealous God because he saved us. He's a jealous God because he delivered us from slavery to sin and set us apart and forgave us of our sin and promised us life eternal in him so that we are his people and he is our God forever. So, of course, he's a jealous God because he has loved us and he has saved us. And so this is an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing to think about That God is jealous for us. It's an amazing thing. That God desires our affections. Our affections for Him. And He is worthy of them all. So let us not be friends with the world. Let us not be friends with the world. Let me ask you a question. Which relationship is stronger, your relationship with the world or your relationship with God? Which one's more vibrant? Which one do you think about more? Which one has a more prominent place in your life? Which one guides more of your decisions? Your relationship with the world or your relationship with God? This is a tough word from James, but it's a glorious word, the, jealous, the joy that God is jealous for our affections. And that brings us to number three here, and that is the glory of God's grace. On the heels of this stiff rebuke, James reminds us in verse six, he says, but, but he, that is God, gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see, what's James saying here? He's saying here that if we are guilty of these things, of, of having these passions, these uncontrolled passions in our hearts, if we are guilty of of spiritual adultery, of pursuing for happiness anything and everything besides God, if we're guilty of these things, he says, here's the solution. Humble yourself before God. He said, because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you humble yourself, if you turn back to God, he will, he will return to you. If you draw near to God, the Bible says he will draw near to you. You see, it's astounding to think that God, after centuries of Israel's rebellion, prophesying of the future day, of the return from the exile, the, promise, the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 54, he says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you says the Lord, your Redeemer. God told Israel, <laughs> He told His adulterous wife, He says, I'll take you back. I'll take you back. If you come back to me, I'll take you back. That's the, it's called grace of God. God. That's what it's called. It's called the grace of God. All that we've done, all the sins that we've committed, all the things that we've ever done, all the spiritual adultery that we've committed against God. God says, if you humble yourself before me and confess and acknowledge your sin and repent and come back to me, draw near to me, God says, I'll take you back. I'll take you back if we repent of our idolatry. But note here that James also says, that he opposes the proud. If we refuse to humble ourselves, if we refuse to come back to God, James says that we will be we will find ourselves in opposition to God himself. To God himself. God opposes the proud. And that's why James uses such strong language cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, I, I think about this sometimes. And I think, and I, I, do, it, I do it too, and it's important. We focus, we focus a lot on grace, and we should. It's God's grace that saves, and it's God's grace that changes heart. But sometimes I wonder if we're too quick to turn to grace that we forget to weep over our sins. When's the last time you wept over your sin, truly broken at what we have done, truly mournful, mournful of the impact that our sins have made? Truly, sit down and think about how how we have turned away from God and looked for to satisfaction in other things, and we just we cry, grace, 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 but. We can cheapen it if we don't take the time to think about our sin. And that's what James is saying. Mourn, weep, turn your joy to gloom. First, humble yourself before God. But when we do, there is grace. David, when he committed murder of Uriah and adultery with Bathsheba, he wrote a psalm of repentance. And confession, and, and contrition, in Psalm fifty-one, and this is what it said in Psalm fifty-one, seventeen. He said, "The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit; a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." See what David's saying. In Israel, if you sinned against God, you're supposed to bring him a sacrifice to atone for your sin. But what David says is that the sacrifice that God really wants... God doesn't really want a a goat or a lamb. What God really wants is a broken heart. He wants brokenness over your sin. Contrition over your sin. And guess what? This is what it says. If you are broken and contrite over your sin... This is what it says. It says, God will not despise you. Even though... When we realize our sin and see it for what it is, we'll recognize that we should be despicable in the sight of God. God says if we're broken over our sin, he will not despise us. He won't despise us. He'll look on us in love and grace and mercy. And that's why James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's the great Christian paradox you try to exalt yourself and God will humble you you humble yourself and God will exalt you you pursue yourself in your own self aggrandizement God will make sure you're humbled but if you don't fight for yourself you just serve God serve others let God deal with it the Bible says that he will exalt you and if we humble ourselves in brokenness and repentance before God he will exalt us and if you think about it, of course, this is just the story of the prodigal son, and with this I'll be close. You know the story. The son looked at his father, won his inheritance, basically wishing his father would die so that he could have his inheritance. He said, give me my portion, I'm gonna go off and spend it and prodigal living. But then one day the son finally came to his senses. And realize that life as a slave in the father's house is better than this so-called freedom that I have embraced. And so he goes back to his father. And what does his father do? He humbles himself before his father. He has his whole speech prepared of repentance before his father. But when he gets to his father, what does his father do? Puts a ring on his finger. A robe on his shoulder. He kills the fatted lamb and he throws a party. My son was lost and now is found. He's dead, but now he's alive. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. And that's the message for all of us today. And if you don't know Christ today, that's the most important decision that you'll ever make in your entire life is to humble yourself before God and he will forgive you and he will exalt you. Let's pray.